So I just got done watching the NFC and AFC Championship games, and there's something that really irks me. When the action ends, the announcers inevitably interview players, coaches, and painfully, the victorious team owner. And said owner is always referred to as Mr. Mr. Laurie, Mr. Rooney, Mr. Brown. And in a league that still generally refuses to hire African-American head coaches, it's telling. The wealthy white men, most of whom inherited their fortunes from other wealthy white men, are Mr. and Sir. And the athletes who worked their asses off, who often rose from the ashes, and who are almost 70% black, are called by their first names. Why? Because it's the NFL. And this is how the NFL does. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Singing Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Alex Coffey, the Phillies beat writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer and the former A's beat writer for the Athletic. This is episode number 296. Let's sing Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, Alex Coffey. You might be the first. I, think, I guess you probably are the first father-daughter. Uh, dad, Wayne Coffey, a very noted journalist for many years. This is really interesting, actually. It is hard getting older in this profession. And I'm definitely starting to see that a little bit. And I wonder the dynamic of having a dad who I'm guessing your dad's probably in his 70s. Late 60s. And here you are, 20s? I'm about two months away from 30. When you talk to your dad about journalism, like what is that? What are those dialogues like? I feel like we kind of fill similar niche and are drawn to similar story ideas. So honestly, even though there's a big age gap, I think it goes pretty smoothly and naturally just because we, we kind of like operate on the same wavelengths. I think where it gets tricky is when I want him to read something and, you know, it took us a while to f- like find that right flow of like, he's not putting too much of himself in my story or like, and I like yell at him when he does that. And I'm like, just like, tell me what part might be, um, I don't know, maybe like a little too wordy or a little too, like, I need to get to the point quicker. Like basically like, that's how we do it now. It's like, I'll send him something to read and he'll just tell me like identify areas where I could tighten things up or like rephrase something or, you know, he like lets me do it. Cause I was like, initially I was like, I don't want like, I want to feel like I have ownership of what I'm putting out into the world, if that makes sense. Actually, it's funny because my wife was not a writer by profession, but she writes more and more. And she's written a couple of books. And we have that exact same dynamic where I would edit her. She'd ask me to read it and I would make it sound like something I would write. So is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah. I know that he's just trying to help me and I love him for trying to help. And, you know, I really appreciate his help. But at the end of the day, we write differently and we have different writing styles. And I can see it like immediately when there's something that's a Wayne sentence instead of an Alex sentence. (laughs) Give me an example. What's a Wayne sentence in an Alex edit? Um, This is going to make me sound like such a jerk. I don't want to, I don't think he listens to this podcast, but um, I think I'm a little bit more, maybe like a little bit more understated than he is. I mean, it's just something that like I can see when I, you know, I know it when I see it, that makes sense. Wait, so you reached out to me originally. I was trying to think back. It was probably 2018 ish or 2019 I still don't know why you reached out to me of all people, but you did reach out to maybe reach out to 50 different. Because I listened to the podcast (laughs) and you were working for the Seattle Mariners Mm -hmm. and you were the baseball information coordinator. Mm -hmm. And if I recall, you were not, you were not happy. Like you were not enjoying the task. Okay. 
for a lot of people working for a major league baseball team, you know, in your twenties and blah, blah, blah. Oh, Seattle, the Mariners. It's cool. But why didn't you like that job? So my first job out of college was um, working at the baseball hall of fame and it was technically a PR job, but I was writing all the time because I, they needed stories for their website. Like when a hall of famer came to town, they would need someone to like write about the visit. And I just don't think it dawned on me how much I enjoyed that part of my job until I got to Seattle started working in a job that didn't involve like any, you know, feature human interest writing at all. Um, It was kind of strictly like numbers and working with players and working with journalists, um, but not really writing. And it just, it just dawned on me when I was out there that it was something that I missed and something that I wanted to do, even though it was risky, you know, like my dad had had a pretty awful experience at the end of his tenure with the daily news. And that kind of spooked me. Wait, How do you mean? You know, like they had these massive layoffs in 2015 and um, he had, I think he had been working there for 30, 35 years and was blindsided. And um, yeah, I mean, that had a pretty big impact on me and and my decision to go into PR um, and my reluctance to go into journalism. Um, But I really had a pull towards it and I just wanted to dip my toe and see what happened. And, um, so quit my job with the Mariners and decided to start freelancing for the athletic writing about the WNBA. Um, I was getting paid $150 an article. Uh, (laughs) and it was a strict, like two articles a week system. Like we weren't allowed to write more. So, um, things were a little bit tight back then. I had to get a day job and, um, what was your day job? I worked at a salon in Seattle and I was working the front desk, which didn't really come naturally to me because I don't know anything about like makeup or hair. So I would show up with like wet hair and like no makeup and they'd be like, this is not going (laughs) to fly. You literally represent our salon. Like you cannot (laughs) show up to work looking like this. Um, It was tough because I would get these like state mandated 15 minute breaks. And I remember, you know, I'd be asking someone about like their, you know, like a former player with like, about their relationship with like a different player. And like, I would hear like a knock at the door and then my, my break was over and I'd have to like, end the interview, you know what I mean? Like it was just not conducive to the kinds of stories that I wanted to write. Um, But, but I made it work somehow. Um, And a couple months later, uh, an opening came up at the athletic to cover the A's and yeah, that was my first full-time job. So I was kind of in the right place at the right time. One thing I remember about that time with the WNBA, and mm-hmm. I think we talked about it briefly at the time, but now that we're neither of us are affiliated with the athletic, I think it's an interesting topic. Mm-hmm. They were like, they really celebrated themselves for covering the WNBA. It's mm-hmm. like WNBA beat writers in every city. And yeah. like the little, like in the teeny tiny fine print, like when you see the like each happy meal, it, what 0.00 cent goes to the Ronald McDonald house is yeah. they were paying you guys absolute shit. Yeah. Limited in what you could write, blah, blah, blah. Does the athletic deserve credit for covering the WNBA or was it bullshit? Uh, I mean, I think that the answer has to be somewhere in between. I think it's great that they, you know, covered the WNBA at all, but they also didn't cover it as well as they could have. I know from my personal experience, I wanted to write more than I did even given my crazy schedule, I mean, like working like two jobs and going to WNBA games at night, like I still wanted to write more than two articles a week. And um, 
you know, and this isn't my supervisor's fault or anyone's, you know, it's obviously like a decision that's above their pay grade, but it was always just stick to the plan. (laughs) But yeah, I think that if they were going to do that and if they were going to publicize it the way that they did, I think that they should have done it right and thoroughly and like hire full-time people and people who are familiar with the league and familiar with the teams. Do you think newspapers should be covering the WNBA as thoroughly as they cover an NBA team? Is the interest there to cover the WNBA? I mean, it's an interesting chicken and egg kind of question. If you ask people that are like that work in the league that write about the league, they'll say that the reason that, um, you know, they'll say that if, if you cover it, then like the league will grow and that like, you know, like it's just that the problem is like the lack of media coverage. Um, uh, And then like, you know, if you ask people that have tried covering the WNBA and haven't had like a good experience, they'll say that like the interest just isn't there and blah, blah, blah. This is like an ongoing thing that's, that was debated in my mentions for way too long. And I never really came to a concrete conclusion about it. All right. So you jump onto the Oakland A's beat. You've never been a beat writer. Mm -mm. Uh, You had this job you didn't like in Seattle. You had been at the hall of fame. Do you have any idea what you're doing? No. (laughs) what are the things you look back now on that you wish you'd known or things that maybe skills that you didn't realize you'd need or what, what it takes to cover baseball that maybe you were just not aware of. Initially I was scared of being vulnerable about um, like what I did and didn't know. And it took me a while to realize that transparency and honesty can go a long way in not just learning about the sport, but building relationships with people. Because if you think about it, like from a player's perspective or an executive's perspective, why would they want to talk to someone who acts like they know everything? You know, like if I knew everything, I would be in those jobs. Um, (laughs) So I think that was one of the biggest things early on was like understanding the power of acknowledging what you don't know and communicating that to the people that you work with and you interview. And that's something that I still do today. I think, you know, you're human and it's easy to feel like embarrassed sometimes if you like don't know, you know, like some baseball lingo, whatever, like speak term. There are like a million of those types of words that the baseball lifers will use. But I try not to get like caught up in feeling like embarrassed about it or feeling shameful. If you're interviewing someone and you don't know what they're talking about, you just say, can you explain that to me? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you get like the best stuff that way, you know, like just having them explain it and I feel like there are more people out there that don't know what those terms, like, I feel like there are a lot of people that are pretending that they know what these, you know, like there are more people that don't know what they're talking about than they let on. (laughs) I feel like for me personally, there's a time to admit, I don't know what I'm talking about. And there's a time to kind of bullshit my way through and just nod and and look it up later. Mm -hmm. Are you of the opinion that you should just always admit you don't know what you're talking about? Uh, I definitely lean towards admitting it like more than like, I guess maybe it would like depend. I, I'm sure that there's like a scenario out there where I would need to like bullshit my way through it. Most of the time I'm pretty transparent about what I do and don't know. And I think that that has helped me learn more when you're writing a feature about someone, you expect them to be transparent and vulnerable with you. So I kind of came to the conclusion that I should do the same for like in, in whatever context, whether it's just interviewing someone about some inside baseball type thing, like why am I reluctant to be vulnerable if I'm asking them to be vulnerable with me? When you were covering the A's, it was during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And you and I were in contact a decent amount every now and then, DM and stuff. You're 3,000 miles from your family, which is East Coast based. Yeah. Covering this team, there was nothing going on. You were living in California by yourself. 
it seemed like a really fucking rough. Yeah. I mean, that whole thing was weird because like I show up to spring training and I have two weeks of media availability and then the pandemic hits and everything is shut down. And from then on, I'm not getting like any face-to-face time with any of these guys. It's just like all over interview, like whatever, zoom phone, whatever texting. That's it. So it was really challenging from a professional standpoint. And then from a personal standpoint, like I had no real ties to the Bay area. So to move there and then have it turn into a ghost town, like two months in or whatever, (laughs) um, wasn't easy, but I didn't stay there the whole time. I didn't stay in Oakland through the whole pandemic. I came back to New York and was doing, but that like presented its own challenges because then there's a time difference and it's like, I'm staying up till three o'clock in the morning, um, watching and writing and interviewing these guys. And so it was kind of like a pick your poison thing. Like, would you rather be with your family at home in an environment that you want to be in? Um, and be sleep deprived, or <laughs> would you rather be in the Bay Area where you know no one and are alone? And yeah, tough time. Were you living at home? Like, did you move back home with your folks during that period? Yeah, yeah. Um, like about late May, I think, is when I moved back home. And you're covering the Oakland A's from yeah from New York. Wait, yeah. it's almost like a sitcom. I got to say, you're living at home with your sports writer dad, covering a team three thousand miles away during a <laughs> pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. You can't make this up. I was actually up my family. They have like a house that's been passed down from like my great, great grandparents in the Catskill mountains, like kind of central upstate New York. And I spent a lot of time covering the A's from there because there weren't a lot of like people around and COVID wasn't like crazy and stuff. So um, people would like ask me about my background on zooms because it would look like super rustic and like, <laughs> They were like, where are you? Like, we're are you in Oakland or something? Yeah. <laughs> I'm in Oakland. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was definitely, definitely unusual. And it was hard to feel, you know, um, connected to what was going on and plugged in. And um, I tried my best to like build relationships by texting guys. And like, I think it happened organically like when i would write features on guys and stuff and like meet their family and like all that kind of thing but but it was definitely difficult like not physically being there july 2021 you quit you leave the athletic Mm -hmm. and i remember hearing about this honestly god i didn't say this to you at the time and thinking that's fucking insane like this is like you're covering the oakland a's you're getting paid (laughs) to cover the oakland a's it's your first real journalism job like that's Terrible idea. What are you doing? I swear to God, in my head, I was like, I may never hear from Alex again. Like this may be, she may just be leaving journalism in like 20 years from now. I'll be like, oh yeah, I remember Alex Coffee. What led you to that decision? Well, first off, when I like made that announcement, people were acting like I was going off to war or something. Like I deserved like the, I don't know. They were like, you're so brave. Like, <laughs> like I deserved the purple heart or something like that. I'm like, this is not, I don't know if brave is the right word to describe what I did, but um. Basically, um, I was going back and forth with The Athletic about a raise and we were talking about like relocating me back to California because access was starting to open up. And as you know, it's super expensive to live in California, super expensive to live in the Bay Area. And when I was hired, I was hired like without any real journalism experience. So my salary was pretty low and I was living paycheck to paycheck in the Bay Area and I'd hit all my subscription goals at The Athletic up to that point. So 
I felt like I deserved some sort of a bump. And they basically just said, like, we can talk about it in November. And that just wasn't enough. You know, I was happier on the East Coast, happier to be by my family. That just wasn't really enough to convince me to like uproot my life and move back to the Bay Area. This is kind of like going into a lot of personal stuff, but I had gotten into a car accident right before spring training of 2020. So right before the pandemic hit. So I didn't have a car out there and I made like one final push to them. I was like, just a rental car. Like, can I have a rental car so I can like exist in the Bay area and like drive to work, drive to the ballpark. And they wouldn't even do that. So I was like, if I'm not even worth a rental car to these people, like, why am I going to uproot my life and leave my family and my friends and the place that I want to be? And just like, so that was why I made that decision. Was it a scary decision to make or no? Yeah, of course. Cause I was, you know, I was betting on myself and I didn't have anything lined up and freelancing is difficult. And it's like, you know, I, I was used to getting like a regular paycheck and all of a sudden you're going to like, I, you know, this, like you're getting like paychecks irregularly and like, some of them are late and like, you know, it, it, of course it's scary, but um, I, I, I saw it more as like a self-respect thing, you know, like if they don't respect me enough to like even give me a rental car or like talk seriously about a raise, then why would I make this grand gesture, you know, of like moving 3000 miles back to California? I didn't think it was worth it. What was your family's reaction when you did it? Oh, you know, they were terrified, but they were also terrified when I uh, left my job at the Mariners to freelance right about the WNBA. So um, for 150 bucks a, co- a story. Yeah, they weren't wild about that one. Um, and I remember telling them like my dad was like not thrilled about it. And I was like, this is not me asking for your permission. This is me telling you what I'm doing. I'm just giving you the courtesy of letting you know what I'm doing. And this was like a similar kind of chat. But at that point, I had built up a little bit of currency with them where they were like, okay, she's done this before and she figured it out before. So it was definitely like a betting on myself type moment, but I'm really happy I did. Between the time you were at The Athletic and uh, with the Philly Inquirer, you did a piece about Stanley Jefferson, a mm-hmm. former New York Met, who I wrote about because I wrote a book about the 86 Mets and Stanley Jefferson appears somewhat briefly in that book. Uh, Stanley Jefferson was a former Met, very hot prospect back in the day. And uh, he wound up becoming a New York City police officer involved in September 11th. And you wrote this piece for foxsports.com. Mm-hmm. Stanley Jefferson, former Met and New York City cop, still haunted by his 9-11 experience. It ran September 10th, 2021. Your lead real quick is Stanley Jefferson is trapped. It has been this way for 20 years. He gives you an example. September 29th, 2013, Mike Piazza Day at City Field. The Mets were playing the Brewers. New York knocked in two runs in the bottom of the eighth to win it 3-2, to two, capping their season at 74 wins. Before the game, Piazza was inducted into the team's Hall of Fame. Mayor Michael Bloomberg was there. Piazza gave a nice speech and held up a wooden plaque. Jefferson remembers barely any of it. He doesn't know who was playing. He missed the two RBIs in the bottom of the eighth. The game meant nothing to him. The Mets took Jefferson in the first round of the 83 MLB draft. He made his debut with them in 86, playing 14 games with their eventual World Series winning club. He has been offered free tickets countless times, and he has returned once, only because his girlfriend at the time was a big Met fan. City Field was packed that day. Jefferson didn't even want to get out of his car. The walk from the parking lot to the ballpark was agony. By the time he got to his seats and saw those people, he was ready to leave. And you wrote this piece about this guy who really has been battered by his 9-11 experience and in a way has become sort of a hermit. Um, It's a great, great, great story. How did you even know this existed and how did you go about doing it? 
So my dad actually wrote about Stan maybe for like the 10th anniversary of 9-11 or something like that. And I'd always loved that story of his. I think it was like a, he might've, I mean, I don't know, you might've mentioned it on your podcast with him. Like it's just a masterclass and, you know, his lead is fantastic. And he's, it was, it's like one of my favorite stories that he's ever done. And I knew it was like a big anniversary and I was looking for ideas and um, just kind of figured I would check in on him and see what he's up to. And the seed was kind of planted in my head. I don't think it like really hit me at the time because when 9-11 happened, I was in third grade and it was like my memories of it are super hazy. And I always looked at it as this like one big thing, like this one big, terrible thing. And for whatever reason, like I think maybe because the 20th anniversary, it's like you start hearing about like more personal stories and like individual, like individual lives that are impacted by this day. And um, it just kind of blew me away to to talk to, you know, Stan, for example, and hear about how this guy's one, like this one guy was impacted by this, you know, traumatic event and he's still impacted by it and he still lives with it every day. And then you think about like that times, you know, how many thousands, like the ripple effects are just crazy to think about. So that was kind of what I wanted to convey in that story. It was just like, this is one person who was there and just think about like the countless, the other people, you know, like if you kind of like take a microscope to it, it's pretty mind blowing. So we talked on the phone for like about three hours or so, and it was hard to sift through everything. So it was like one of those interviews that just kind of went on and on. And there was a lot of stuff there, but um, that one definitely like sticks with me because there's a real like cruelty to his specific dilemma. Cause he's, you can tell just talking to him that he loves people and he loves talking to people and he loves being around people, but he gets so anxious because of this event, you know, because of his experience, like sifting through the rubble. So like what he craves and what he wants in life, he can't have. And it's like an unsolvable problem so far, at least for him. Um, I just want to say the headline forgotten. And this ran uh, March 4th, 2007, Wayne Coffee, The lead that you speak of is four flights up in Co-op City at the end of a hallway in building 26. The big man sits in a big brown recliner boxed in by four walls and demons and emptiness that doesn't end. If only it did, if only it were finite, measurable, like the outfields of Yankee Stadium and Shea Stadium or the other big league parks he once called home. Then Stanley Jefferson might be able to know exactly what he's dealing with. Then he might be able to go outside, go to work, maybe share the things he still believes he has to give and begin to pick up the shreds of a life that sometimes seems broken beyond recognition. That's fucking brilliant. I know, I know, I know. It's hard to share a surname with my dad sometimes because he does shit like that. And I'm just like, well, <laughs> wait, that's really interesting. Like my dad was a was a wrote some books, but he mainly was a CPA. Right. Like the, the, mm-hmm. the like your dad is one of the great newspaper writers of sort of the last what X number of years. I mean, he's just fantastic. Do you feel like you have to measure up to his writing? Like you're you're literally writing a profile, of the same guy he profiled and a guy that you hit that piece really moved you. So now you have to write the same profile. And like, I don't know if it'd be possible to write one better than he wrote. I just figured like the story inherently is different. He's moved to Florida since then. Like he's, you know, like, I think the story is more like 20 years out. This guy is like still dealing with this. Like, this isn't like a new phenomenon for him. Like he's still dealing with it and he's probably going to deal with it for the rest of his life. And how does he grapple with that? Um, So I tried to like, look at it in a different vein. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's like, I try to like, look at us as just like, even though we like occupy the, the same space, we're like different, different writers and like different people. Is there any competitiveness? 
Mm, not on my end, maybe on his end. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I, I obviously like admire what he's done. I mean, sometimes I read his stuff and I'm just like, how am I ever going to, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I don't know how I would ever be able to like come up with that. Like that line about like Yankee stadium and Shay, like yeah. it's so brilliant. And the way he writes it just, it doesn't feel clunky at all. It just comes out so naturally. Like, and I think that that's something that I've picked up from him, from reading him and from talking to him is that he has a very like smooth, almost conversational style of writing that like just kind of grabs you and you feel like you're talking to someone and it just, I don't know. It's almost like stream of consciousness, if that makes sense. Like that's kind of how I, how I read his stuff. Oh yeah. I just want to say you wrote a story, sort of what was spin off of that um, in the Enquirer that came out on December 21st. The Phillies, Andrew Bellotti made a fatal mistake as a team, a tale of remarkable forgiveness followed. And it's a piece about Bellotti, who, when he was 18 years old, not drunk, but driving and in a rush, um, hit another car and killed the man. It's about his sort of his widow years later and her feelings toward Bellotti and her feelings of forgiveness and this really beautiful, beautiful story. And your lead was Lynette Reed doesn't like clutter. She keeps a tidy home in Western South Dakota and is quick to toss out anything she doesn't need. But for the last 12 years, she has held onto an old cardboard box in her garage. And then you wrote something, a line that I love. It's tiny. You wrote, she isn't sure why, like she isn't sure why that line in of of itself, like, but for the past 12 years, she's held onto an old cardboard box in her garage. She isn't sure why. And that's it. One sentence. And that's super like casual, laid back, harder to do than one might think to sort of write in a way where you're a narrator and you're mm-hmm. guiding the story along. And I'm sure you didn't even think of it. I'm sure you didn't like spend an hour thinking she isn't sure why. Oh, that's a really good sentence. But like, I'm guessing three or four years ago, you probably weren't writing. She isn't sure why. And I remember talking to you about this. Like I remember talking to you about like that narration and how hard it is to, because I think I read um, your story on um, the guy from Gary, Indiana, the ball player. Oh, I'm in Bostock. Yeah. 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 I love that story. And you have like this narration through it. That's, um, you know, kind of like takes hold of the reader and just guides them through. And um, yeah, it is hard. And I don't really know how to, I don't know if you can teach it. I don't know if like, maybe you have a different opinion on that. Um, but yeah, I think it just kind of comes like naturally maybe over time. Cause I think I've gotten better at it. I just don't really know why or how, or. <laughs> so how do you, okay. You have this lead, right? Lynette Reed doesn't like clutter. She keeps a tidy home in Western South Dakota and is quick to toss out anything she doesn't need. But for the last 12 years, she has held on to an old cardboard box in her garage. She isn't sure why inside it are files that lay out in painstaking detail, the worst day of her life. How do you actually in your head come up with that? I just start and then I read it back out loud. And then I just know, I mean, the best way I can explain it is I know what it sounds like when I have it right. Like I know what the rhythm is supposed to sound like. And I know, like, I don't know, for whatever reason, like reading things back out loud, like really clarifies in my head. Um, So that's my process is like, I read like the entire story out from like start to finish, like out loud. And I can usually catch something that feels like a little clunky or something that doesn't sound right or something. Cause I want it to sound like I'm like what my dad does. Like I'm having like a conversation with someone, you know, I want it to flow and I want it to sound natural. And like, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but of course it does. And like, I like how you wrote, you wrote um 18 year old Andrew Bellotti was not drunk period. He was not on drugs period. He was just running late period. 
that could have been all one long sentence. Mm-hmm. But there's something about that. But um, but um, I really wanted to like hammer home the fact that he wasn't under the influence of anything beyond like being late. <laughs> one of the reasons that I wanted to write this story was that there were a lot of like fans who assumed that um that he was under the influence of something because they they had known that he got in an accident. They knew that he went to jail, but they didn't really know the details of the accident. So I felt like it was important not just to like get it up high, but to like really like emphasize that he wasn't under the influence of anything. Cause I think that that's something that was misinterpreted or mis, you know, it was a misperception. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my wife, Catherine, who's recovering from a recent bout with COVID. I feel terrible. Did you take Advil? It did nothing. Tylenol? Also did nothing. My mom's bots a ball soup? I'm not that desperate. Okay, we'll try this on. It's a Kentucky Colonel's jersey from RoyalRetros.com. It's authentic, it's stitched. I got it just for you. Oh, it's soft and comfortable, like a warm blanket. Should I get you some ivermectin? To hell with that, let's go skydiving. I've never been able to fully figure this out, right? But like, mm-hmm. in a way, it comes back to your dad reading your stories, editing them, and putting in as something that sounds right to him, but doesn't sound the way you want it. And it's like, I might have the rhythm of Tupac in my head, and you might have the rhythm of Gloria Estefan in your head, and your dad might have the rhythm of Taylor Swift in his head, and that <laughs> writer might have the rhythm of Bach in his head. Like, we yeah. all have different rhythms in our head <laughs> that we think sounds right. But we all have different rhythms, so our rhythm can't totally sound the same. You know what I mean? Like it's really yeah. hard. It's super it's hard. It's funny to how like different people interpret them. Like some people might like my rhythm, some people might not like it. I remember a couple. What was, did you see that like Olivia Nuzzi profile of Trump? Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't read it, but I like saw this stuff going around Twitter about like some long run-on sentence that she had, and some people loved it, and some people hated it, and it's like same thing, you know, like. I just think we all have this internal rhythm. It's different for everyone. So it's actually funny you bring that story up because a friend of mine who's a really good writer wrote me and told me how much she didn't like the story. And yeah. I love this story. I thought it was freaking great. Super polarizing for whatever reason. But clearly, like that's her rhythm. And she thinks that that sounds right. And other people don't. So, you know. It's so interesting. It also is like, all right. So when I was at Sports Illustrated, the editing was so heavy handed that, mm-hmm. like, all these sort of older white Princetonian educated editors <laughs> all had this very singular rhythmic approach to editing stories. And the frustration of writing there was unless you were a Rick Riley or a Steve Russian, you couldn't break through and you would hand in something and it would be super casual and they would be like X, 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 X. And it could drive you to fucking drink. Yeah. That would drive me crazy. In writing the Bilotti story, I really tried to like take myself out of it and like make it as understated as possible, just out of respect for like the topic and the people involved. It just didn't feel like something that I should take like a lot of, you know, like, and I remember reading it back and thinking like, wow, this is like pretty just straightforward and bare bones. And I remember telling my dad, um, you know, I don't think this is like one of the better things that I've written. I think it's like one of the better things I've reported, but I don't think it's one of the better things I've written. And he kind of pushed back on it and was like, there's a lot of beauty and understatement and, you know, like that's a good example of like how our relationship can like, you know, like how it's like great to be able to talk to him about that stuff. Cause he, you know, he gets it and he can provide that perspective of someone who's worked in the industry for like decades and, 
or I remember like reading it back. I was like, ah, I don't really know. You know, I don't really know if this is it. And he was like, I think that the understatement is what makes it. So, yeah, he's a hundred percent right. And it's a great story. And like, you almost learn over time that it's all about the reporting. Like mm-hmm. it's all because anyone can write some like snazzy phrase if you've done this long enough, but it's like all about the details. I love this. You wrote, um, one night in June, she found herself shuffling through it again and came across a letter that Bilotti had sent her from jail. The first thing she noticed was his cursive. This is great. It was remarkably neat for a teenager. Every word was carefully crafted in pencil with not a comment or a period out of place. Now that's not like breathtakingly dazzling writing where I'd be like, oh my God, this is, she's yeah. blah, blah, the next, you know, Hunter Thompson. But it's a million times better than that because it paints a picture in my head exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, these people definitely think I'm crazy because I'm asking them like a million follow-up questions about like the box and what kind of box and, you know, like, but I'm always like, it'll make sense when you read it. <laughs> like, <laughs> you'll understand why I'm asking these questions. Um, do you but, worry about breaking up a flow of a conversation? Because I do the same thing and I do worry about this. Like, do you worry about you're interviewing this woman? She's telling you about this nightmare she went through. It's her husband was killed and she has this box with letters. And so I know exactly what you're thinking. Like she's telling you about the box and you're thinking, is it cardboard? Is it plastic? Is it metal? Yeah. Is it exactly. like, yeah. You concern yourself with breaking up the flow of a conversation. I usually just take notes and then I'll circle back to them after or like text her later or um, yeah. So that's kind of how I approach that instead of breaking up a, a flow. Um, this, this story was like interesting in the fact that like, so whenever Bilotti pitched, I would have like people in my mentions, like I'd tweet out like Bilotti's in the game, whatever he did X, Y, Z. And people would be like saying he got a DUI and saying like comparing him to guys who had like domestic violence charges and things like that. And I kind of like filed it away, you know, an off season story, just like clear the air and like maybe write a full profile of his career. Cause he's had like a re- remarkable career and he's overcome all this stuff. I did not know that the widow had been following along, like following his career until I talked to her on the phone about the accident. And our first interview, I had to postpone because they had like the Trey Turner press conference, like the Philly signed Trey Turner. And I had to go up to the ballpark and she like knew all this stuff about Trey Turner, like random, like this lady like lives in South Dakota. And I was like, why does she know all this? Like, I didn't even realize that she was still following baseball, let alone like the Phillies. So I asked her, that was like my first question was like, are you following the Phillies? Like, are you following the team? And she was just, that kind of opened the whole thing about her following Andrew and why she's following him and how invested she is in his career. So once I got that information, I felt like I had to go back to him and explain that the story has changed. Like it's about like you and her now, it's not just like a profile of you. And I think that you know, we, we like process these events differently. Like we don't always process them like in a neat and tidy logical way. So I basically gave him the out, you know, if he didn't want to like open this can of worms again, I was like, we can just drop the story entirely. I don't have to publish it. If it's going to like re-traumatize, you know, like if it's going to like cause pain and like cause you to like relive this day, like it's not worth publishing the story. And he just said, like, go with what you think is the most compelling angle. But I didn't know what he was going to say to that. You know, like it was, it was definitely like a unique perspective from a reporting, like from, you know, it's like the first time I've encountered that in my brief journalism career where I'm kind of like a, suddenly like a character in this whole thing, because like, they're not communicating directly. I'm the intermediary. I'm like letting them know what they're saying about each other. So it was definitely unique. 
How did you find her? I dug up an article that had been written about Bilotti, I think in 2010. And I reached out to like the beat reporter that wrote that article and just asked him for herself. Were you nervous about reaching out to her? Of course. I mean, I read that article and I could tell from her quotes that she was like, she seemed to be like an empathetic person. And um, I thought there was like a very real chance that she wouldn't want to revisit it. So I didn't really know what to expect. I definitely didn't expect what ended up happening. (laughs) My one letdown, it's not your fault, is uh, so you wrote uh, Lynette Reed and Andrew Bellotti have never met. They've never Mm -hmm. talked directly. They might never meet or talk. And that is okay. There's no right or wrong way to process trauma. I kind of want them to meet. (laughs) Well, that was why I put that in there was because I knew that people would read this and like want them to meet. And I don't know if they're ready to meet. I, I think that there's, you know, like when I told Andrew about what Lynette had said about him, it took him like a couple of days to even like think of the words, you know, think of how he wanted to respond to her. like knowing that she's like been supporting him and rooting him on. And right. so I knew that <laughs> I knew that people would read it and like immediately want her to like go out to the ballpark and meet and, you know, I, but I just don't know if they're ready for that. And I don't know if they're ever going to be ready for that. We need the Disney ending. Uh, yeah. Well, that's been like drilled into us. So yeah. uh, wait, I want to ask you one more writing thing about this, which is yeah. kind of interesting. And it is that sense I just read or a paragraph. When yeah. I read and Andrew Bellotti have never met, they've never talked directly. They might never meet and talk. And then you wrote, and that is okay. There's no right or wrong way to process trauma. Why is it okay for you to write that? I actually felt kind of uncomfortable writing that because I was like, maybe I'm inserting too much of my like opinion in this, but it just felt like the right thing to do. Like it felt like the right message to send to the reader but it's funny that you caught that because i like i definitely that's probably like the part of the story that i like fixated on the most was like whether or not i should keep that or leave that out um i like it i'm all in on it i think it's okay to be the narrator it just felt like like one of the main takeaways of reporting this whole thing was like you know that there's no like the way that we process these events is not always it's not always clean it's not always like it doesn't always make sense you know so I just wanted to convey that. You're the Phillies B writer for the Inquirer. You covered the Phillies made the World Series. You covered the World Series. <laughs> Did you care whether the Phillies won the World Series? Mm, I didn't want to write a book, so um, <laughs> I was never going to write a book. People started asking me as they were like getting deeper into the playoff question. They were like, are you going to write a book about this season? I'm like, uh, I don't know if I have a book in me. Right. Um I mean, I think that the stories are better when they keep, you know, like guys are in better moods. They want to talk more. They, you know, like if you look at the stories after a loss, the stories after a win, like the stories after a win are so much better because guys are more willing and, you know, there are better angles normally. So I would have preferred for them to win. Is uh, Bryce Harper a good superstar to cover? He kind of sets the tone for the rest of the clubhouse and he's very um, accountable, like, he'll ask us if we need anything from him. Like he'll, you know, he's not like hiding. He's there and he's willing to talk. And I think that um, the other guys see that and they're like, if this guy, if the superstar of the clubhouse is acting that way, then why can't we act that way? You know, you've listened to this podcast. I'm required to ask you the final question, but I don't know if you have a good answer. What's the jerkiest moment you've had with an athlete? Um, <laughs> During the um, the Phillies like celebration of the 1980 team, um, 
they like invited Pete Rose back and it was like the first time he was going to be back since they were going to induct him into their hall of fame. But like they ended up canceling his hall of fame induction because um, this testimony came out from like an, like a girl who said that she, or a woman who said she was like involved with Pete Rose sexually when she was underage. And she said this like under oath and um, his defense was that he thought she was 16 at the time, which doesn't really hold up, you know? So I asked the Phillies for comment and I just like knew in my gut, like heading into this event, I was like, I feel like this is going to be a shit show. I had no sense of like whether the Phillies were going to make him available for comment, like, you know, like whether he was going to be available in the context of the team. I had no idea what I was walking into. So I show up and it's 10 a.m. There are all these like players are taking a group photo on the field and it's like Steve Carlton's there and he never shows up for stuff. So it's like a big deal. And he's taking pictures with like the Phillies current pitching staff and whatever, like everyone's in a good mood. And I see Pete like walking off the field after they take a photo. And I was like, this is probably my only shot to ask him like the question that I want to ask him. So I just was like something to the effect of like, I like explained who I was and what newspaper I, I worked for. And I was like, what message do you think your presence here like sends to women? And he was like something to the effect of like, I don't want to talk to talk about that. It was 55 years ago, babe. <laughs> and then just like walks off the field and I tweet it and like listened back to the, the recording on my phone, like 15 times to make sure that I like had it right. I was like, did he actually say that? Like tweeted it out, wrote a quick news story. By that point it's blowing up. And then after that, to our surprise, the Phillies or I don't know who whose decision this was, but they made Pete available like on his own instead of like with his teammates. Like we were told there was going to be media availability for the 1980 team. And it's just Pete, like no one else. And he was asked about it and it was like, you know, shouldn't like no contrition. It was obvious he didn't, he didn't feel like he had done anything wrong. And then at the end, his, um, his handler or whatever, like asked, me to come over and tried to convince Pete to like apologize to me. And it was just awkward because he still felt like he had nothing to apologize for. And when I walked up to him, he was like, Oh, you're the one that tried to attack me earlier. And I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I identified myself as a journalist. You also could have just said like, I have no comment instead, <laughs> instead of, you know, <laughs> Wait, I have, a few com- I have a few questions about that. Well, first of all, yeah. I just want to say the tweet, August 7th, 2022, I asked P. Rose what he would say to people who say his presence here sends a negative message to women. His response, no, I'm not here to talk about that. Sorry about that. It was 55 years ago, babe. Okay. Which is very funny. And it got, you know, a decent number of 944 quotes and 5,000 likes yeah. and all that bullshit. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Number one, you go up to P. Rose to ask him this question. Are you a little nervous about asking this question? Of course I am. Of course. But I thought about it. I'd done all this reading. I'd read this woman's testimony. I had, you know, I'd read as much and like talked to as many people as I possibly could have. I'd gone to him for comment. I'd gone to like, you know, his reps to see if I could talk to him about this beforehand. I'd, I'd taken like every possible avenue to try to avoid, like, I did not want this to blow up and become what it did, but I was given no, you know, this was my shot. And, you know, this guy's never going to be asked this question. Like he's never, I personally, I think it's a relevant question because the last time he was supposed to be at the ballpark was when they canceled his hall of fame induction because of this very issue. And since then he hasn't been pressed on it. He's been in Vegas signing baseballs for a living, you know? So when, like, who's going to ask him and like, when is he going to be asked this, you know, when is he going to be pressed on it? So it was scary, but I felt like I had to do it. And I felt like really strongly about it. I always say in this podcast, you just got to, it's, it doesn't get easier. You just learn to walk through your fear, you know? 
Yeah. Right. Um, so anyway, it was just a crazy day because yeah, that blew up. And then like afterwards his, his PR person tried to convince him to apologize to me. And he was, it took him like six tries, but yeah, he was like, I'll sign a thousand baseballs for you. If, if it makes it better or like, you know, like he was saying all this stuff that was just, but also wait, you may disagree with me and this may be perspective, like me being, a, I don't know, a man or an older man or whatever. Right. I don't think I'd want him to apologize. I'd be kind of be like, I, I wasn't looking for an apology. Right, like they called me over and they were like, Pete has something to tell you. And Pete was like, you're the one who attacked me earlier. <laughs> I was like, is that what he wanted to tell me? <laughs> um, and it was funny. Cause like, the the PR guy like Pete would say something offensive and the PR guy would be like what he means to say is and I'm like you're not like right. are you his translator or something like what <laughs> we're all speaking English here like we don't <laughs> this is working out for neither of you so you may want to yeah. stop Pete, your handler just stop talking okay. yeah I was shocked that they made him so available I mean he was I think he wants to be available. Like, I think he wants to be around media people. I think he likes the attention, but he obviously hates addressing these kinds of topics. So it's like a double-edged sword of, you know, he wants the attention, but he wants to talk about being the hit king. He doesn't want to talk about being, you know. Right. We now are making available Steve Carlton to talk about the seven Jews on the Hill who have <laughs> over the planet. <laughs> then we're bringing in special musical guest, Kanye West. So it's going to be great. Great day here at Philly. <laughs> Uh, so yeah that actually uh that has to be like the worst that i dealt with you know this is my first full season being in a clubhouse every day when i was covering the a's that was like my first full season on on a beat but i wasn't there every day i wasn't there in person you know so basically what you're saying is you got you have plenty of time to be offended and face athletes saying awful things yes exactly yeah 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 Yeah. right yeah um well i just want to say like uh i'm glad you left the athletic (laughs) <laughs> I love your career. I like, I just like, I like that you took a shot and like, it worked out. I've always admired your respect of sort of journalism and your respect of people who came before you. And I think you're definitely a journalist journalist. It seems like you'd be happier without Twitter and social media being here and, you know, just writing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm very, very happy for you. And I appreciate you doing the show. Yeah. No, like I said, this is a full circle moment for me. I mean, the show taught me a lot. Um, still teaches me a lot. So it feels surreal to be featured as a guest. I want to thank today's guest, Alex Coffey, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Alex on Twitter at ByAlexCoffey and read her work in the Philadelphia Inquirer. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I would really appreciate it. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding. <laughs>